From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable, coming to you from Beijing. I'm He Yang. Good to have you join us. Since the pandemic, more people have turned to gig work to fill the gaps, and the nature of that work is evolving. The demands of the 21st century gig economy face the dilemma to preserve. Flexibility while providing stronger safety nets. What will the future of work look like, and how does flexible gig work fit into the puzzle? And we share with you what's made us happy this week in Roundtable's Happy Place. For today's program, I'm joined by Yu Shun in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's Roundtable. In China and around the world, the gig economy continues to grow. Part of it stems from pandemic restrictions moved much work online, thus gave rise to digital nomads. Some of which pick up office work gigs online and do them remotely. Also, for more than a decade now, the internet has spawned a huge number of new and flexible on-demand side hustles, such as rideshare drivers. Delivery workers and handiwork, as such, there doesn't seem to be a unanimously agreed explanation of gig economy. How would you define the term? Yeah, well, first of all, Oxford Dictionary explained it as a labor market characterized by prevalence of short-term contracts or freelance work, as opposed to permanent jobs. So we can see gig economy statistics show a free market system where organizations and independent workers engage in short-term work arrangements. And、um, recently, according to the data website Statista, in 2023, the projected gross volume of the gig economy is expected to reach 455 billion U.S. dollars, which means it is absolutely increasing. And 
We can see in 2020, the gig economy experienced significant increases, mainly in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And this was the effect of significant job losses, but also the new independent work opportunities the pandemic created. For example, virtual assistants in digital customer experience and many other posts that allow you to work remotely. Yeah, that's a really good point. But I do wonder, for every one remote gig, does that mean that one person who used to sign a contract be formally employed to the economy loses that job opportunity? Josh, um, do you have some thoughts about how do you define gig economy? It's still a bit of a blurry term for a lot of people. And what's your observation of this whole thing ballooning in the recent years. Yeah, I think that the term is a bit of a gray area and I I don't think there is any absolute definition of what a gig job is or what the gig economy is. But whenever I think of gig, because I'm a musician, the word gig to me, I can't help but when I hear it, think about a performance like a show. Because in British English especially, we refer to musical performances as gigs. And way before the gig economy, we were using it in this way. So for me, I can't really get that out of my head. And so my understanding of it in a, from a very biased, subjective um, viewpoint is that it's something that people do as a one-off, something that's flexible, something that's an additional income. So I think this is a key word, that it's additional. Although this is also disputable, right? Because I think whereas originally the gig economy was maybe seen as something that people did temporarily while they were looking for work or for additional income on top of their other main form of employment. I think now a lot of people that are working in the gig economy are doing it full time, Mm -hmm. right? And I think then it's also sort of going into freelance as well. I think a lot of people that work in the gig economy are also freelancers. And I think that these two terms as well, freelance work and gig economy work, can often be synonymous. So, yeah, I don't think there is any absolute definition of it. And also you bring in more confusing terms, freelancing. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's a term that's been around a long time. And I've tried to look up um, different definitions for freelancing and gig work or, you know, people called gigsters. I don't know how they'll feel about that. Um, And I found all these conflicting definitions. Uh, People don't seem to even agree upon which is the bigger umbrella term, freelancing or gig work. And the gigs in popular parlance still seems a little bit more new to me as opposed to freelancing, I suppose. Um, And so very often we think of gig work being tied to online intermediaries. For example, if you are driving the DD car or Uber, um, that's the Western equivalent, um, let's say a couple hours after your day job, then that's gig work. But we know a lot of people are now full-time ride-sharing drivers. And then a gig turns into almost like a full-time job, but minus the formal contract 
which promises all these workers' rights and benefits, and therefore, you know, that becomes it's not particular new anymore, but this has been one of the more controversial factors of these uh, new gig style works for people and how should you define the responsibilities and the benefits that companies supposedly should be offering its workers and also employees you know that's a term that's been given new meaning as well these days because if you are an employee then that assumes that this person has signed a formal contract and is employed full-time with a particular employer. So it is a little confusing, I suppose. And now in 2023, what are the latest trends when it comes to gig work? We can take a look from the U.S. first. Yeah, according to a report from an American freelancing platform, which called Upwork, um, freelancing hits an all-time high since tracking began in 2014. And we can see in 2022, a staggering 39% of the U.S. workforce, or 60 million Americans, performed freelance work, up three percentage points from 2021. This increase also contributed to a more significant economic impact, and freelancers contributed 1.35 trillion U.S. dollars to the U.S. economy in annual earnings in 2022, up 50 billion U.S. dollars from 2021. And we can see high levels among highly skilled and educated professionals are seen in this area. Over half of all freelancers provide knowledge services such as computer programming, marketing, IT, and business consulting. There was also a sharp increase in freelancers who hold a postgraduate degree. In 2022, one in four freelancers hold a postgraduate degree, up from one in five last year. Yes, and we're seeing that it's mostly young people, Gen Z and millennials. They're most likely to explore freelancing and take up some of these gigs. Josh, what do you think is the reason behind all of these things happening? Well, I think that what we're talking about here, to be honest, there's a few things I'd like to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, should I start with the negatives or the positives? I think that a lot of the gig economy, the reasons for its increase are because of income insecurity and a lack of employment protections, uh, to be honest. I think that gig workers typically, they don't receive the benefits such as health insurance or paid time off, obviously, and their income can be highly unpredictable and highly variable. Now, I guess it depends who you're talking to. I have worked freelance for a very long time, and I think to some degree, I still do, and I like that freedom. So. Some one might call it unpredictable, one might call it freeing. Okay, but still, I think for um, a, the general populace in a lot of countries, in, income insecurity is one reason. Um, I actually found a survey that found in the US anyway, and I know this will vary from country to country, but uh, conducted by the Economic Policy Institute um, in 2019, and they found that 30% of gig workers in the US reported having trouble paying for basic expenses. This mm. was pre-COVID, so things have changed. Anyway, lack of employment protections, I think, also contributes to this. Gig workers, they're often classified as independent contractors, 
freelancers rather than actual employees, which of course means that they do not receive employment protections such as minimum wage, etc. I do also think though, in a pos more positive light, that the gig economy is increasing because um, of a diversity of work. I think that um, now people want to work on a variety of different projects and people like to apply their skills in different ways. And I think that the technological revolution has allowed people to do so. And I think that it's become increasingly easy for you to get additional income if you have the desire to do so. I think any of us right now, if we had the energy after work today, us here in the studio, mm -hmm. we could go out and work a gig economy job, right, if we wanted to. Um, and I think that's partially to do with technology and us being able to be digital nomads, for example. Yes, and what you just brought up, the arguments against um, gig economy, I think are the important ones that have gradually surfaced in the last few years, because when this thing first arrived, everybody was so positive about it. I remember having this speech on Roundtable a few years ago and just talking about how much we would enjoy having flexibility when it comes to employment, because the daily grind is a pain in the behind for so many people. But just the thought that you can organize your own work and you don't need to go to the office every day and have so much autonomy in deciding what you do, that sounded great. Um, and also having these online platforms for you to easily sort of be connected with the other side of the gig that seemed great but now we see that there are some obvious downsides that come with it you shouldn't when looking at the china market what's your up-to-date assessment in is this really a good thing for workers yeah i think why it is getting popular is that it's also another way of kind of entrepreneurship you know you can decide go to work or not according to your own pace. And most of the time, gig workers work as an individual and that can be more of a, you know, self-value realization in some way because you are actually doing something that you are good at on your own. But of course, what I was thinking, the downside of uh, gig work is that, of course, it's um, freer and uh, in other words, unpredictable, which means maybe there are something that you cannot control. And I think one thing that can stop that is um, security uh, health insurance. But independent workers may have problems accessing health insurance and health care. We can see a 2022 McKinsey report shows that while half of the permanent workers get health insurance from their employers or unions, and only 32% of independent workers do. And in China, um, it's also the same, right? If you are not employed by a company, um, and then if you want to enjoy the social security insurance, then you will have to pay for it by yourself, which is kind of a you know, another financial burden on you because mm -hmm. normally if you are employed by a company, the company will pay a percentage of the insurance for you. Yes, indeed. And the part that I'm really worried about when looking forward is that 
will it be that in the future, if not now, looking at the global picture, a lot of the full-time jobs with the full employee benefit package simply have disappeared. So if it is just so much more cheaper and, you know, just the cost-benefit analysis flies, you know, to hire the gig worker, then why keep those full-time jobs? Let's just go full gig work. And just to offer you a side note, and this was like a decade ago in Japan, I remember reading about so these are independent contractors who are dispatched to these well-known companies in Japan. And these independent contractors, they're only there for that one gig or just working for, let's say, a month on a particular project. And then off they go. They go to the next gig. And it worked great for the companies because they didn't need to employ so many people, keep so many people on the company payroll. And um, and they can just rely on these well, I think, you know, pretty early on gig workers to do the job. And what does this mean for so many industries around the world? Well, I think that it's likely that the world is moving towards a gig economy in the future. And I think that it's highly likely that all of us eventually are going to be working in some sort of hybrid model, which a lot of firms are already adopting, actually. Hybrid models that, for example, combine traditional employment with gig work. The pandemic actually pushed us a bit more quickly into this, I think, as many people started working from home and many companies realized that they don't even need to have that physical office space anymore and that they can have a lot of their workers either working in some sort of hybrid form where they're in the office sometimes and working at home other times and that a lot of them can actually do their work just from home and also have a lot more free time on top of this. I actually found, I was looking for some definitions of gig economy and I found a really interesting one by the European Commission. Mm -hmm. They defined it as an evolution of traditional employment relationships whereby people work on a task or project basis. So that to me, this word evolution, I think that encapsulates it for me really because I don't think this is some sort of anomaly or some something strange that's separate from normal work. I think that this is sort of a vision of the future because I think that there's a lot of things like increased platformatization. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if you've heard this term before, but no. if we look at a lot of the gig work platforms like Didi or in the West, like Uber, um, there's another one called TaskRabbit in the US and things like this. Um, Fiverr, I'm not sure if you've heard of this one as well. And these platforms are increasing and they're diversifying a lot. And I think that, uh, they create a, a lot of new challenges and risks, um, but also they offer people genuine opportunity to find extra work. So I, I think that actually overall, the, the economy of the future is likely to be shaped by uh, a dynamic interplay of all of these things. And the gig economy will find a new term and it will just become the economy, the employment economy. But it feels like we, even now, right now, what we are talking about, that kind of a gig economy, um, we are making it equal to digital nomads because imagine there are so many other people that are also doing the gig jobs, but they are actually 
like short-term non-contract workers. Like they work with these kind of、um, one-time individual projects.、Um, from the sound of it, we may think, oh, gig workers—they have flexible time schedule. They can perfectly manage their time. They maybe even have a decent salary. But actually, most of them in China are migrant workers from rural areas, accounting for nearly 60% of the total freelancers working in the gig economy in China. And latest research shows that an increasing number of migrant workers are more willing to go out to work, not like sitting in the office work remotely. The main reason is that they think job opportunities will increase after the pandemic, and、um, they would like to go out and earn money. Okay, a lot is happening.、Uh, one thing about digital nomads is that they can be full-time contract workers. They can be full-time employees. They can be, but they can also be gig workers. They can be freelancers. So, you know, that's the big term. But also for gig work, you know, there are the office, traditionally white-collar office desk job type of gigs. But there are also the ride-sharing, the delivery work, the、uh, handyman job as. Uh, such these kind of gigs as well.、Um, and Josh, you mentioned evolution. I don't necessarily agree with it. I just feel that the term evolution implies that we are evolving towards something that is better. But I'm not sure if this future that we are going into is necessarily better. Also, for in whose In which party's interest is it better? Because it sounds like the companies are making their money hand over fist, but what about the employees and the very,、um, the slightly innocent and very positive narrative for gig work initially was: think of yourself as a white collar worker, and you still have some energy after your day job. Why not do something that fulfills your passion?、Um, A side project, as such, or maybe、uh, recently I saw this、uh, kind of a fun vlog of this guy who、uh, who has a day job, and then he also goes to people's homes to cook for them.、Mm. Um, yeah, and in the vlog, he seems to be very happy about it.、Um, the Cooking has nothing to do with his day job, but he's like, "Oh,、um, I go to people's homes,、um, I cook dinner for them, and they seem to really enjoy it, and I、uh, get a sum of money from it, and also it's some kind of fulfillment for myself. That's great. I mean, yeah, those kind of stories, um, for these kind of stories, they're probably true for some people. But what I'm thinking is that what if in the future this person doesn't have that day job anymore?" Because that day job could be outsourced, could become gig work itself. And how would you feel if you have to rely on gig work twenty, well, not twenty-four hours around the clock, but for your sort of eight hours of productive work time?、Um, yeah, am, am I a little bit pessimistic about how this could evolve? But I think we are at this moment now that the future seems. It could go either way, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I never said that I thought it would be better. I don't know if、e、evolution, of course, has positive connotations to it, right? And I,、yeah. I think that eventually it will be more effective. I I think that we're going to see radical changes when it comes to the working environment、yeah. all over the world.、Mm -hmm. um, and I think that 
this isn't just the gig economy, but it's also because, of course, artificial intelligence. All of these things are really going to change the way we live. And um, I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but I certainly think that time is a big part of this. A lot of the things we're talking about here is uh, are about time, really, and about refocusing our energy to just work when we're supposed to be working and being able to know when our off time is. And I think that that's something, I think that the current economy, a lot of us will be honest that there's a lot of times we're sat in the office where we're doing absolutely nothing. And right now we're still living in this industrial revolution-esque timing system where we clock in at nine o'clock and we clock out at five o'clock. And this just isn't very productive. I just don't think that that's the best way to be working. And um, so yeah, in this way, I see an evolution. I think we're pushing towards something. I don't know if it's for better or for worse. So I. I would like to just footnote that a little bit. I personally, I'm a little bit nervous about all of this myself as well. I'm not sure if I want to want to be a full time gig worker in this sense. Maybe that stability is something people will very much long for in the future because it seems like a lot of things are changing in the employment market and. Our discussion kind of reminds me of the recent writers' strike in the U.S., and it had a lot to do with AI, a lot to do with streaming platforms coming up with their own shows, and then the traditional TV stations—they don't need to make so many 24-episode shows per season anymore. And then the the stability and security of the writer's job have been stripped, and then, you know, how do you cope with that when many of the、uh, not so well-off and famous writers feel like they simply cannot survive in the job profession anymore? And what does that that mean for the future of television as such? So it's really. It's really interesting a subject to talk about, but also it is something I feel is affecting many many jobs in the future, and I can't really put a finger to it what exactly direction it's going to go. But this is definitely something we will look at. Coming up during the second half of the show, we're gonna discuss. How the homestay business is roaring back, and what are the challenges that it faces right now? Stay tuned. I was born on the seventeenth of November. Delve into a world of words with books and beyond, a podcast made especially for audio book lovers. I came into the world as the youngest of five children. I wondered children. what Her Majesty would be like. Fie upon you, limpid one! Why have you taken? Immerse yourself in gripping stories and timeless classics from the comfort of your own personal space. Sun Tzu underlined three points on the context game. There was、initiative. no better wine, and not to mention the. Whether you're a bookworm or a casual listener, our carefully curated selection of audio books will transport you to new worlds and stir your imagination. Subscribe to Books and Beyond and start your audio book adventure now on radio.cgtn.com or your favorite podcast app. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable.
You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Yang. I'm joined by Yushun in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, though the homestay sector was hit hard by the early months of the pandemic, the sector has benefited from pent-up demand for traveling. Of course, we've seen that and we've discussed this on the show this year. And looking ahead, are the good times coming or slowing for the homestay business? And we share with you what's made us happy this week in Roundtable's Happy Place. Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. And please keep sending us your comments, thoughts, and questions to ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com. Your voice could be featured on the show in our Heart to Heart segment. Audio clips are preferred, but emails will do. We would love to have a heart to heart with you. And now our roundtable. Let's continue today's discussion. Despite ups and downs in the last few years, homestays, especially its rural offerings, have become the latest, fastest-growing segment in the hospitality market in China since the COVID. Pandemic, as an increasing number of travelers seek a more relaxed experience close to nature, the popularity has brought both opportunities and challenges. Consumers complain that rising prices are a huge financial burden, while homestay operators feel they have no choice but compete in a rat race of attracting visitors. So, Yushun, please offer us an update on status quo. Yeah, China Daily reports on April nineteenth that data released by homestay operator Tu Jia shows that as of April seventeenth, the platform's bookings for homestays during the May Day holiday were twice that of the same period in twenty nineteen, with an average price of five hundred and thirty four yuan. That's about seventy seven U.S. dollars for one night. For example, Shandong Province in northern China has topped the list of the country's most popular travel destinations, and homestay booking volumes in this city of Zibo of this province has increased twelve times compared to 2019 due to the barbecue craze.、Mm. And f- also from the statistics, we can see younger generations are major consumers among guests who booked rural homestays. Those born in the 1980s and 1990s remain the mainstream, accounting for over 60% of the bookings, according to the data from Tujia. And I think it's mainly because people born in 80s and 90s are mostly earning their own bread, and most people younger than that, like born after 2000, are still at school or are still financially supported by their parents. So that's basically the reason why younger generations are the main consumers here. What about the older generations? When it comes to rural homestays, so nongjialu in Chinese, that's been around forever. I don't understand. Maybe it's because it's a digital platform. Because older folks, and I mean those in their like fifties or whatnot, who don't belong to the nineteen eighties generation or whatnot. But anyway, it's been around for like decades and decades. I don't understand why. Yeah, that's like a thing now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's any phenomenon here. I know that because of the COVID nineteen pandemic, I know that it boosted the popularity of rural homestays and farm stays in the West as well. This is because people obviously wanted to move away from crowded areas, crowded cities, to be in more safer and isolated locations. And、yeah. this is the same all over the world. 
so uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it's a phenomenon here, but I, I know definitely in my own country that rural homestays, or we we actually refer to them as B and Bs, or maybe farmhouse B and B would probably be more accurate. B and B meaning bed and breakfast, right? Yes. These have been popular lodging options for tourists for for decades, mm -hmm. actually. So, what makes a person want to book a B and B bed and breakfast mm. or, or homestay, um, the term we use here? As opposed to going to a regular hotel. One reason, at least I think in my own country, is that people want an authentic local experience. And even though I think there are many stereotypical images of England's green pastures and cows everywhere and people playing football and <laughs> drinking tea on the lawn, I, it's actually not true. Doing for all most the things. People at the same time <laughs> yeah all, all at the same time exactly yeah it's really not true for most people there's a lot of people in england that have never seen a cow right uh, this is something that we joke about sometimes it depends what city you're from right and so i think a lot of people still have a desire to experience an authentic local culture and also of course the natural environment um rural homestays they're located in the countryside a lot of the time surrounded by wildlife and things like this um and sustainable tourism is a big one as well. Hmm, and this also is connected to things being Instagrammable, social media, right? How sustainability is becoming more of an important topic for younger generations. And I think that these kind of homestays are often linked with sustainable tourism because it involves ethical tourism practices. Often the income generated from rural homestays stays in the local community. It might be part of a farm, for example, that mm -hmm. makes its own produce. There's a lot of stuff like this going on, too. Yeah. Well, Yushun, you are the representative of Gen Z on the Roundtable team. So considering yeah. we are... Wait, am I, am I not Gen Z? I don't know. I don't know you that well, my friend. <laughs> Let's talk after the show. So okay. my question for you... You should is that now we're in 2023, this particular time in history, right? And has the choice between homestay and hotel changed for you at all? Like, do you, if you go to a place, a new um, city or rural area or whatnot, which one would you search first on the uh, booking platform on your smartphone? Well, yeah, to be honest, hotel is still my first choice. Ah, okay. Um, but That's not very Gen Z. The thing stereotypes. Is, actually, back then when we were talking about homestays or BNBs, we will think it is actually a cheaper choice compared with hotels because yeah. that that was just um, a spare room of a property of of the owner, right? And they're supposed to be cheaper, and you can just stay there for one night, and maybe the owner can cook breakfast for you. But nowadays, with all of the competition, the owners are creating more unique themes of the house or unique, basically, points that attract you to book that room. So the price of the B&Bs or the homestays are just getting higher and higher, and basically, they are as same as the hotels. And plus, some of the home homestays are located in some rural areas. So if you are going to the city for some scenic spots or some kind of resorts, then maybe you will just choose a hotel near the place, but not a, you know, a fancy place that is located in rural areas. 
It's interesting that now when you talk about the homestays, you're kind of implying that they can't be fancy because that is yeah. a little bit different from the initial impression we had for right. homestays. But considering that competition is usually good, which benefits mm. the consumer, I'm That's... sorry. I'm sorry to say I can't really sympathize that much with the homestay operators. Now they're complaining competition is fierce. We have to like come up with something really special to attract visitors. And isn't that kind of what it's supposed to be in a business that is popular? But I think that should be based on the demand of the customers, because we are talking about Gen Zers. We don't have that kind of a huge budget, right? Of course, there is a market for people who would like to live in an Instagrammable homestay, but there are still students who would like to only just stay for one night, and that doesn't need to be a really fancy place. Aren't there cheap homestays then,、uh, yeah. options out there as well? Josh, can you sympathize with the? Homestay operators who complain about the competition. I can I sympathise with them. I mean, I guess to some degree I can.、Uh, <laughs> I, I understand that it's it's very difficult to operate these kind of places, and so many hotels, especially more independent ones, struggle to stay open. And especially over the last four years during the COVID nineteen pandemic, where tourism, the tourism industry all over the world, took a massive hit, and hotels and Not just hotels, but any sort of entertainment where people are gathering, which, let's face it, is most forms of entertainment, took a real blow, and so many businesses closed. So, I think that just generally, it's very difficult and to to stay open for these places, and the competition is definitely a big part of it. So, whether they're here to stay, how long they're here to stay, I mean, even before COVID, it's still a risk every time you open up a business like this. I think because. People's tastes change, and you have to keep the business up and running. You have to keep marketing it. You have to create a name for yourself. You have to keep the quality high. One bad review can ruin your reputation, <laughs> right? You can have one angry customer, or maybe there's a cockroach somewhere that goes、Ooh. in, and somebody uh, goes, um, you know,、Ballistic. loses it because of that. It's, yeah, that I, I person would, could be me. I couldn't do it myself. It sounds too stressful. <laughs> But I'm very cautious in leaving bad reviews because I know the consequences for these businesses. But also, I kind of think that maybe I shouldn't think that way because what yeah, is fight for your own rights? Because what's valuable here is that I want to tell the next person or the world what true experience one has at this particular place, and that's why you write the review. So I'm a little torn on that. But yeah, you shouldn't tell us what the. Homestay operators have done to try to win this battle of、uh, reputation and、um, succeed in this business. Yeah, of course. Nowadays, in the internet era, using social media and、um, calling on all of these KOLs to promote for them is one of the ways for them. But nowadays, people are just more sober on that kind of thing. You know, <laughs> we、like、know.、It. We know that they post these fancy and gorgeous pictures just to attract your attention, but in reality, maybe that's a different picture. And of course, they are trying to host some music festivals or live concerts in that homestay, so that you can, you know, basically have 
not only a night of a bed and breakfast, but also a night of music and、um, a vibrant neighborhood. But of course, there are some issues caused by these kind of things. Some seniors living nearby <laughs> maybe report these kind of events to authorities in the local village. And then these kind of a music festival may cause noises and have safety risks, so the festival may need to be seized. Yeah, well, this is very relevant for neighbors. Just imagine this. Okay, now let's leave the the farm and go back to the city. For example, in your residential building, and next door is、mm. a homestay. How do you feel about that when you've got you know strangers coming into your compound, your floor every day, and they're excited, they make a lot of noise, and they're only here for one or two nights, and off they go. Another group of people come, and, and yeah,、um, I've seen there have been disputes in residential buildings when. An apartment is turned into a homestay, as such. <laughs> It just sounds like a B and B to me, like a bed and breakfast. If you go to the UK, you go to some B and Bs. It might feel a bit strange for a lot of people because you walk in and you just feel like you're in someone's house, like in someone's living room, and the family's still there. And you're staying upstairs in a bedroom, and then you go down and have dinner with the family. Well, that's、um, okay. Yeah, but, but but that's a separate house, you know. So. It's kind of different from an apartment. See if you agree with this, Josh. Because in an apartment, you know, like every floor has, let's say, like twenty apartments, ten apartments, and then your neighbors making noise is easily transferable through the walls. And then you sort of, some people just don't feel very safe when they've got like strangers coming into your apartment building and your floor every day. In that sense, if it's a homestay operating next door. So if it's an independent house, I think the feeling is kind of different. What do you think? I guess it depends on how much you value having neighbors. I mean, come <laughs> on, though. We live in a big city where does anybody really know their neighbor in a city like Beijing or London or wherever big city you might be living in? I mean, people are moving in and out all the time, and in big cities like this, nobody trusts anyone. I think people go decades living next to the same person and barely speaking to them. So I can't really see how anybody would have a massive issue with this. As long、It's、as they're not、reality. too noisy. I, I think the people down my corridor. I think there's a some sort of homestay going on down my corridor. Maybe a few of them. I really don't care. <laughs> But maybe that's just me. <laughs> maybe. Well, aside from the different styles of homestays that Yushun has、uh, spoken about, there's another main drive for urban dwellers, often quite young, to. Go to these、um, rural homestays. That apparently it doesn't have that much to do with money or whatnot. It's the experience, and people are apparently looking in, and they want to nurture their soul because the daily grind, long commute, rat race in the city is way too much for them, and they're looking for that soul escape. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> that sounds more like a staycation. So they book a、um, room from that homestay and staying there for just some meditation, something like that. Isn't staycation basically staying at home for a vacation? I think it's more like they stay in a hotel room for a vacation. 
That's a staycation, right? I mean, I, I don't actually think that either of your examples are necessarily bad. Um, I think that they're a little bit sad. Um, I don't <laughs> think that... <laughs> I don't think that... <laughs> they were both supposed to be good. Okay, sad. Actually, Keep on going. you know what? I don't think staying at home is that sad. I think if you're really happy at home, I think that's a really healthy thing because it probably means that you've got a very healthy abode where you feel comfortable, yeah. you feel relaxed. And I think that's really good, actually. I think that's what everybody should aim to do. Mm -hmm. I've Now, I'm going to just say that before I, I say this, I've also stayed in a hotel as a staycation before just to get away from everything and not told anybody and just gone and basically just sat in the bath and drank wine on my own. I and mean, that's really sad. No, I mean, come on. No, that's not. That's like pampering yourself. I mean, sitting but in I the bath. But I don't think that's healthy. I mm. think that... If you're, the if you're the that wine? miserable and stressed at home that <laughs> yeah. you have to go and stay in a hotel down the road mm. to get some sort of escape, you should probably quit your job and move somewhere else. Oh, I don't mean, be so quick to judge yourself or jump to conclusions. I mean, I I think so, personally, because every time I've done that, it's because I want to quit my job and move somewhere else. So that, <laughs> I'm just going off my own personal experience. Like, anyway, I, I don't know. It's It's a really tricky one because also you could argue that rural homestays having to do that also means that probably i don't know are you happy in your city life or are you just wanting a change it's quite difficult it will vary from person to person just um i guess take care and take note of how you're feeling i guess mm. it's been some patient waiting and a lot of hard work for those homestay operators to have stayed afloat this long and to see their business bounce back. What do you think the next few years is going to look for this business? Well, most recently this morning when I checked the news, Airbnb, um, the company in the US apparently is seeing a dip in its bookings this summer, despite, you know, having a great year last year. So uh, it's going to look good or... Not so much in the future. I think that the future is reasonably bright. At least I think that the future is bright for the tourism industry that's focused on unique and authentic experience. Now, what this actually constitutes a unique or authentic experience may change, right? But I think that there is a growing interest of travelers seeking such kind of experiences. And I guess as long as these rural homestays can offer this kind of experience, can offer something authentic something new people are always going to want to experience something new right so i think this is the challenge but i think appreciation of nature appreciation of well um, authentic produce and getting away from the hustle and bustle and stress of the city um is always going to be marketable and is always going to be worth something yeah and of course there's got to be a huge market for these kind of uh, homestays, but I think that also depends on the demands of the customers. And from the perspective of customers, I think hygiene is absolutely the first thing that we need to consider and the owners need to consider. Of course, homestays itself can be personalized, but their services should be standardized. And that is the thing that can guarantee a safe and pleasant living experience for every customer coming to the homestays. Yeah, otherwise they give you a bad review. Right. <laughs> Circles back. You're listening to Roundtable. Coming up next, welcome to Roundtable's Happy Place. Delivery. 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 What is it? 
Happiness from Round Table. Josh, what do you have for us in this week's Happy Place? Well, there is a TV show that some people may fam- be familiar with, which is called Ted Lasso, and it's a really popular TV show. It's been increasing in popularity, and I think it's a really positive show. And I'd like to talk about it a little bit. At first, it seemed like maybe this show wasn't going to be so popular because it's quite niche. Not in the UK because the topic is football, soccer, kicking balls with your feet, not American football, right? And I guess. At first, it might have seemed like, unless you're interested in football or soccer, however、mm-hmm. you may call it, you might not be interested in this show. But very quickly, it garnered a real loyal following and a big fan base of people who were not interested in football at all. And I, I think that、uh, it's worth a watch. Honestly, I think it's worth a watch, and it's got a really positive message.、Um, it's quite optimistic. It's got a real focus on things like empathy, teamwork,、mm. kindness. And it really encourages the viewers to be sincere and honest. I know all of these things sound really grand, but it manages to do this in a way that quite immediately seems a bit cheesy. But actually, the writing is just so clever and witty, and the actors are also incredible, and the characters are really relatable. And I just think that it's a fantastic TV show. And I don't really want to say too much without giving away too much, but. I encourage anybody who's looking for a really well-written TV show to go and give this one a try, and don't be put off by the fact that it's about football, because as I mentioned before, it really is for anybody. And if that's not enough to persuade you, it's won so many awards. Just <laughs> go and look it up, Ted Lasso. The third season's just come out, and it's just really lifting my mood. Oh, that's fantastic! Quick question, though. Yeah. Does it? Make you want to cry.、Um, I think that there are moments that people will cry. Yeah, it depends how <laughs> sensitive you are and what you <laughs> cry about. But did I cry at any point during the last two seasons? Probably not. But I mean, <laughs> I don't. I don't. I rarely cry unless, the, as I've mentioned this before, unless a dog dies <gasps> in a film or there's something to do、oh. with a dog. I probably won't cry if there's a dog in there somewhere. I'm gonna be bawling. Oh no. Okay. Well, the reason why I asked is、um, I'm kind of looking for a detox experience, and、um, yeah, that's one of the could be an option reasons why I watch certain shows. And、uh, yeah, it just makes you feel really、uh, like a cleansing process as such. So. Thank you very much, Josh, for recommending that show, and I will definitely look it up after this recording. And、um, I will share with you my happy place, which is Tina Turner, the eight-time Grammy winner, also known as the Queen of Rock and Roll, and for the hits like "What's Love Got to Do with It" and "Simply the Best," has died at the age. Of eighty-three, and my happy place this week is remembering Tina Turner and celebrating her lifetime of work and music legacy.、Um, I have to admit that Tina Turner is a little bit before my time, so it was when I was looking for some really good music, and oh, actually, when I was looking for something interesting to read, and I came across a book, a biography of Tina Turner, and、um, her life story is just truly amazing. First of all, I want to 
talk about how absolutely pioneering Tina Turner was in rock and roll. This woman, well, she's kind of the one who taught Mick Jagger every move he knows. And she was such an icon, a legendary um, musician. And she managed to find a second phase of her music career after her 40s, winning more Grammys. And she's got this truly authentic and incredible voice and character and that's just very rare to be found in the music industry um and also on top of that um she wasn't just a powerhouse live on stage her life story the fact that she broke away from a marriage of domestic abuse and that was so rare for you to see in the lives of celebrities and also it was very powerful um she spoke about it in the 1980s um and finally um, divorcing her previous husband ike turner i'm not sure if she would appreciate this part to be mentioned this much in her life i think she really wanted her music contributions to be forever attached to her name and that and i'm going to do that so her tenacity and fierce through horrible adversity and fighting off racism in a very, very competitive business and finding her success in her career in different ages. And I find that to be something very inspiring. And on the way out, I'd like to share a song by the great Tina Turner, The Best. And that brings us to the end of today's roundtable. Thank you so much, Yushun and Josh Cotterell, for joining the discussion. I'm He Young. We'll see you next time. Simply